Episode 167 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the English football commentator Kenneth Wollstoneholme, who worked for BBC Television from 1950 for over 20 years. He's most famous for the phrase he used when Jeff Hurst completed his hat-trick for England at the end of the 1966 World Cup final. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. Kenneth left the BBC in 1971, commentated for Time Tees television in the mid to late 70s, and occasionally worked for Channel 4's Italian football coverage from the early 1990s. Less well-known, but perhaps more importantly, Kenneth was a bomber pilot during the Second World War, completing well over 100 extremely dangerous missions over occupied Europe, for which he was highly decorated. Kenneth Wollstoneholme died in 2002 at the age of 81. This interview took place only a year before, in 2001. First of all, are you working on anything at the moment? Are you still working for Channel 4? No, no, no. I'm not, because it's the end of the Italian season, and um, I've been ill <laughs> for oh three months, so oh dear. I had a uh, very slack time of it. Has this put you into retirement, then? Does this mean you won't be coming back to work? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It just depends how I feel. Certainly, I'm not going to come back to work during this summer. I'm going to have a very lazy time. I hope I then come back to uh, various things later on, because I don't like to feel this uh, business of retirement, where you get up in the morning and oh, you just potter around, you sit and read the paper, and you get bored with that, so I like to be doing something. You've always struck me as someone who absolutely loves his work, and I imagine it must be difficult for you to not do any of it. It is, yes. I'd much rather have things to do. Much rather. And do you watch much football when the season's on? Do you actually enjoy going to games, or is that novelty worn off a long time ago? No, it's not. I enjoy going to watch them. But I know this is the <laughs> almost the back end of football, isn't it, down in South Devon? But even when I don't go and watch, say, a premiership match or things like that, I go and watch Torquay United. Oh, right. In fact, I... I always blamed Torquay United for giving me heart palpitations, which I could do without. When I was poorly, you know, they when they played their last match of the season, they had to win it, and uh, they got two up, oh, and they gave away a penalty. Then they got three up, and then the second half, 3-1, three, 3-2, three, I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Who were they playing against? They were playing, of all people, Barnet. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, gone out of the football league oh and uh, Torquay basically the only reasonable team in the area within striking distance uh, well yes Torquay Exeter and Plymouth mm. they're all very much on a, on a level but does watching football on TV does that still give you uh, excitement or uh, do you still watch it with the sound down as you used to say yes I, I do watch it mainly with the sound down uh, but I don't watch everything that's on uh, television. I think there's too much on television. I, really, you, you could drive yourself bananas listening to it all. But the really big matches I watch. And, of course, I'm a Bolton Wanderers supporter. I have been all my life. 
and they've got their big game, the the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Yeah. So I'm going to kill two birds with one stone on on Monday. I'm going to watch them. I hope beat Preston North End and get into the Premiership. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, um, go inside the Millennium Stadium right. for the first time. <laughs> Why do you watch football with the sound on? Is that because you don't like the way commentators do or because you like to commentate to yourself when you're at home? Well, I don't like the continual talking they do. It's been a complete takeover of the American way of commentating. You don't really need two commentators, but the Americans have two commentators and they love to talk to each other, you know, and almost get down to such important things. As, How's your mother these days? You know, and... Um, and I think a lot of awful facts and figures are thrown at you. I think it's much more enjoyable if you have the sound down. Do any of the commentators, do you like any of them at all? Any well, of them? No, they've all been trained in, in this new way, you see, which I, mm. I don't like. And then you have the people who, the pundits, they call them, I think. Uh, you have them at half-time and at full-time. And I think the, the job of the commentator has virtually disappeared. If you look at the Radio Times, look in your newspaper, mostly they say, you know, um, big bat, the European Champions League, which is a thing I hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Leeds United versus Valencia. The match live from famous Valencia Stadium, introduced by either Gary Lineker or by Des Lynham, who has with him Alan Hansen and Charlie Smithers, and mm. um, it goes on, and there's no mention of the commentator's name, and he's got somebody sitting next to him, which mm. <laughs> he doesn't need. <laughs> mm. But uh, there you are, it's, it's a whole, the whole world changes, doesn't it? Really? Mm. Do you think that it is possible to compare the football of today to the football of your early days? It's very difficult, very difficult, because, <laughs> let's be honest, they played with a big leather ball <laughs> in those days, uh, whereas they play in a be- with a beach ball today. I mean, they say, it's marvellous how they can swerve it. I bet they couldn't swerve the old leather ball. You know, so it's a different game, really. You know, the, the lads played in these big leather boots, and they played in, on mud heaps half the time. So... It has changed completely. Is it possible for you to say who your all-time favourite footballer is or the all-time best footballer? Well, it's very difficult to say that because uh, I always say, do you mean the best all-round footballer? In which case, I say it's a, it's a draw between Alfredo Di Stefano and John Charles. In fact, one thing we're going to do is the last match of Football Italia this season. We're taking John and his wife to Turin. He's going to be the guest of Juventus. And they're trying to rustle up a lot of his old pals with whom he played and against whom he played. And John was well, a great centre forward and a great centre half. And not, not many of those knocking around today. Hmm. <laughs> Are you friends with many footballers or has it always just been a work thing? It has always been a work thing, but... Uh, I try to be friendly with them. Yeah. No, I mean, are you genuine friends? You like? Do you have people round for dinner who you've known for years? Like, no, you know, Jeff no, or not, not that close. 
And the modern ones, I don't know the modern ones as, as much as uh, I do the older ones. Right, sure. <laughs> you know, you go to football matches and you say, God, I'm dead old Charlie Smith. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, the footballers themselves mainly are, are decent guys. And the, the old fellas don't groan and moan about, God, if we only had those wages. They were satisfied with their lot. They got on with the game, and a lot of them serve uh, the game now, you know, to the best of their abilities, either scouts or uh, physios and things like that. Mm. May we know when and where you were born? Yes, well, I was born in a little place called Worsley, which is about three miles from Manchester. Nothing to do with the Yorkshire Worsleys, you know, um, right. We've got all the titles, because I'm worstly in Lancashire. <laughs> yeah. Was that why you support Bolton, then? Is that close That's enough? That's right, because I went to school, grammar school, Farnworth Grammar School, which is Farnworth. It's the next door town to Bolton. And funnily enough, also a pupil at that school was a man called Alan Ball. Oh, wow. Mind you, he's very quick to tell you... We weren't there at the same time. <laughs> well, you haven't told me yet when you were born. I was born on July the 17th, 1920. And you have got this amazing memory, certainly for football statistics. How far can you remember back in your life? Well, I can remember a long way back, really. <laughs> and um, all sorts of things that happened. I remember being at Burnham Park, which was then the Bolton Wonders Ground, and they had their record ever crowd of 69,000 people, Gosh. plus a few hundred, you know, Gosh, uh, when they played Manchester City at home in an FA Cup tie. What year was that? I think that was 1930-something. Oh. And how they ever got nearly 70,000 people into that ground hmm. is beyond me. Yeah. I mean, they would never be allowed today, of course. And were you from a football family? Yes, my dad was a, a very keen uh, footballer. He played local football. He always told me he was the best left back, played in their league. Oh, right. But he had to give it up. He got rheumatic fever, you see. Oh, right. I've never been able to get any confirmation that he was the best left back playing <laughs> in the league. Won't argue with him now. And your mum? Mums in those days... They didn't flock to football matches and right. things like that. Mm. So I remember my mum used to take me to Old Trafford cricket ground. We'd take sandwiches and I'd have a bottle of lemonade and we'd sit just mm. on, off the boundary. And I'd watch the cricket. Mother would do some knitting and then go to sleep. Don't think she realised that out there were some great players like Julep Sinji, Walter Hammond and... Uh, all those people. <laughs> Do you have brothers and sisters? I did have, yes. I had uh, two brothers and two sisters, but I'm the only survivor now. Were they into football at all? Well, the lads were interested in football. The girls weren't. What did you want to do when you were very young? Did you always want to go into football in some capacity? Yes, after I'd turned down the railways, I wanted to be an engine driver first, but uh, then there were so many people wanting to be engine drivers, I thought that too crowded a profession. <laughs> <laughs> so every kid wanted to be an engine driver. Mm -hmm. And then I, I wanted to be a, a sports journalist, and it had to be a journalist because we'd never heard of television. Oh, God. What made you want to be a sports journalist? Where did that idea come from? 
Well, I liked sport, very keen on sport, and I wanted to write, I wanted to be a journalist. That ambition, it stuck with me in quite a bit of luck because I joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve before the war. Used to go to Barton Airport. <laughs> Used to go Barton Manchester Airport. Mm-hmm. You, you could land a tiger moth there, but I wouldn't like to try and land anything else. And we were taught to fly, the you know, the basics. Now that was a, my own choice because after the Munich crisis, you know, when um, the Czechoslovakia business and then yeah. the Polish business came up, and I thought it's obvious, there's going to be a war. Everybody believed there was going to be a war except the Daily Express, who kept coming out with headlines, there will be no war this year, next year, or in the foreseeable future. Anyway, war started on September the 1st, when the Germans went into mm-hmm. Poland, and I heard a thing on BBC radio that all the members of any of the reservists, one of the forces, armed forces, report to your town centre immediately. Well, how do you report to the town centre? I mean, what do you take? <laughs> Didn't have uniforms. <laughs> so I got a case, put a shirt, some underpants, and better pyjamas or something, toothbrush, and thought, well, I better go. My mother cried her eyes out because uh, obviously all mothers cry their eyes out when their sons go to war. Mm. <laughs> and she'd lost a brother in the First World War. Were you scared? Did the war frighten you? Uh, well, at that time, no, I, 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 it's a bit of gung-ho stuff. Uh, you got frightened later. When we arrived at this uh, town centre, we all looked at each other. Nobody knew what to take, and there were only... There were two members of the Royal Air Force there, permanent members. One was just an AC-2, that's the lowest form of animal life in the Royal Air Force, mm-hmm. and a leading aircraftsman. And it was a bit like like a comedy show, you know. They said, well, what have you come here for? Because <laughs> they hadn't been listening to the radio, the wireless, as it was called mm-hmm. in those days. And they what? didn't know that they were getting an influx of these people. So they did decide, well, we better show who's in charge. So the AC2 said, attention, fall in. <laughs> attention, stand at ease, stand easy, attention, you know, do that about three times. Then he handed over to the leading aircraft when he went through the same rig roll and then said, could you come back tomorrow? <laughs> Where did you do most of your flying during the war? Well, during the war... At long last, after they got us moving, the first thing we did was not to go flying. We were billeted to... Well, I was at Cambridge University. And, uh, <laughs> not that I passed any exams to get there, but I, I lived in Trinity Hall, right. and that was purely and simply teach me how to march and about turn, and um, I didn't really see why we had to do that, but... Then it all came. You, you, you had mm. to learn the discipline of the thing. And after a bit, I was transferred to Sywell, which is in Northampton, to continue the training. And this is when I had a great stroke of luck, because they had a timekeeper there who used to time you when you took off and when you landed. 
and most of us were doing what we call circuits and bumps, you know, take mm. off and land it, take off and land it. And um, I used to talk to this fellow because I found out he was a journalist. We chatted away and I said, I was a journalist too, because I had worked about six weeks, seven weeks on a local weekly newspaper in Manchester. That made me a fully-fledged journalist. (laughs) (laughs) After a bit, I left Cywell, and then they decided who were going to be the fighter pilots and who were going to be the bomber pilots. And I was chosen to be the bomber pilots, fly twin-engine aircraft. And little did we know (laughs) who would be flying four-engine aircraft as well. And um, I never saw this man again until at the end of the war when I was on the mob leave, in 1947, I think it was, Bolton Wanderers got to the semi-final of the FA Cup. It was yeah. The FA Cup had started again yeah. in 1946, and we played Charlton Athletic in the semi-final at Villa Park. So I was cheeky enough to write to the Football Association and tell them that I was an RAF officer, ex-bomber pilot, piled it all onto them, <laughs> and... Uh, a former sports journalist before the war, could I have a press ticket for the semi-final? Well, today they wouldn't even wouldn't even answer you. But I got a press ticket, and I got there at Villa Park, and I'm looking round, and, and a voice said, what the bloody hell are you doing here? Uh-huh. And I turned around, and it was this timekeeper. And he was the sports editor of the Sunday Empire News by that time. And he uh, asked me what I was going to do, and I finished my demob leave, I said, well, I want to be a journalist. And he rang me up during the week and said, it was near the end of the football season, beginning of the cricket season, and league cricket was a very big thing in Lancashire in those days. Had people like Leary Constantine oh, playing. Yeah. And all the great West Indies, Waddle, Walcott, Weeks, they all yeah. came and played there. He said, do a piece on league cricket. I knew nothing about what had been happening with league cricket. I mean, I'd, I'd been away. I hadn't been anywhere near my home yeah. for all this time. But Worsley Cricket Club, of which I was a junior member before the war, mm-hmm. they were celebrating their centenary. So I read all this bump, and mm-hmm. I more or less copied what they read about <laughs> it. And said, oh, you know, when it happily turns, Worsley Cricket Club, and um, probably one of the oldest cricket clubs in the north of England. Well, at that time, the BBC in the north of England, BBC Wireless, as mm. it was then, they were trying to find the oldest cricket club in the north. Mm. So I got phoned up by the BBC, went there and got onto their sports programme. And that's how I started in radio. And then when I read the television, they called it, was coming back. They'd had it in London. You know, I think half a dozen people were watching it before the war. Mm. And so they were coming again. So I wrote and said, well, I'm just the man you're looking for to be a commentator when you're doing this football. I went to have an audition, a game at Rumford in Essex. And there were three other guys. I can't remember who they were. And we all did a bit in the first half and a bit in the second half. And those days, there was no way of recording anything they hadn't progressed that far. So it was resting on what the producer thought was mm. the head of outside broadcast. Well, the producer very conveniently got to rest the hospital the 
very next day on the Sunday with acute appendicitis. Mm. And of course, the whole thing was a waste of time. And then the BBC announced when it was going to expand television, you know, mm -hmm. and this was a great excitement that it was going to get north of Watford, which meant really coming out, going into the middle of the jungle, because the BBC in those days didn't think there was any, anything north of Watford. Anyway, they announced that they got the rights to do an amateur international trial, albeit as well at Romford in Essex, <laughs> and the southern counties against the northern counties. And they got very worried about, um, you ought to get a northern voice, otherwise, you know, they'll say that, oh, it's all London, isn't it? Who was that fellow we got down at <laughs> that audition? And I got a call, would I come down and do the commentary on the game or mm. share it with another fellow? Well, mm. yes, please. The other fellow was the referee of the 1937 FA Cup final. And the game was goalless at the end of 90 minutes. And it was heading for being goalless after the extra time because it looked like a replay which had never happened and he gave a penalty in the last minute of extra time and Preston North End beat Huddersfield Town with that penalty. Mm. Kenneth, have you ever wished you hadn't gone into football commentary or anything like that? Have you ever wished you'd done a different career? No, no. I had the funniest job in the world. I mean, I travelled all over the world, you know, because we started... We weren't allowed to do any league football. In fact, Alan Hardacre, who was in the, God rest his soul, and the secretary of the Football League, he said he was not going to have television running his football league. Wow, how things have changed, eh? By Jingo, he's looking down from up yeah. there. <laughs> you see, for me, I could never have done something like you did, because I, apart from anything else, I can't stand flying, but obviously for you, having been in the RAF, it would have been easy for you to fly around the world to football matches. Yeah. You didn't mind it at all. Flying doesn't worry me at all. But do you think, generally speaking, that that was the best time for you, the, the 50s and 60s? Did you really... Was that the best time in your life? The 50s, 60s and 70s, yes. Yeah? Lovely. I went to all sorts of exotic places, and we didn't go out with a great team if we were covering a game, be it a European Cup match or a friendly match, because we used to do a lot of friendly matches. And it was great, but you went there on your own. You didn't have a, an entourage with you. <laughs> and you had great fun. You know, you, you met people like people who were in this tremendous Hungarian football team that became the first team to beat England at Wembley, first mm. foreign team. You know, people like Pushkas and Hidaguti and, oh, dear. And I got invited back to Budapest celebrate the 40th anniversary of that victory. <laughs> Why they celebrated uh, the 40th anniversary, they said, well, there'll be nobody alive in the oh. 50 years. And they treated us like gods. They had a wonderful time. And to what extent was the 66 World Cup finals, was that the best tournament you ever got involved in? Uh, well, yes. That wasn't the best World Cup final I've ever seen, but it was, of course, for the viewers here. And after all, England won it, so it, it was a, a tremendous 
day. From where you were sitting, was the ball over the line? Well, I couldn't tell, because I was sitting high in the stand, right on the centre line, so there was no way I could tell. But you've seen TV replays since. What's your feeling? Oh, the ball was definitely over the line, but where they stopped television replays and all the pictures in magazines is when the ball hits the ground. Mm. The thing is, it had been over the... It hit the crossbar, which was elliptical, and the ball was hit upwards by Jeff Hurst, struck the inside, the lower half of the crossbar, and it swerved over the line. Mm. Now, Roger Hunt was standing there, watched it, because I said to him, why did you kick the and he pulled me to the back of the net and there would have been no argument. He said, God, it would have been so far over the line. I just wanted to go and celebrate and mm. run up to Jeff. The famous phrase you were to use later on in the match, had you ever used that phrase before in any other match? No, never. And I've never used it since. Do I you... left that to the uh, BBC's light entertainment department. Well, quite, yeah. How did you feel about it being used to name a comedy series? Well, I... I wrote to the director-general and said, what have those words got to do with the sports quiz? And vice versa, what's the sports quiz got to do with those words? And got a, an alarming letter back from the director-general. It was John Burke, as I always called him. His name was John Burt, really. And he said, oh, we wanted to pick out your words and bring your immortal words to the attention of the younger generation, which I'd never heard such gods what I've been like. <laughs> no, I think it was awful. I mean, they just hitched on to it, you mm. know. I bet you wish you'd copyrighted those words. You can't. I you... tried to. <laughs> did you really? When did you try? Almost as soon as I heard this programme was coming out. No, you know, you could stand up at a dinner tonight and say, friends, Romans and countrymen, lend me your ears. And you don't know Will Shakespeare a penny. No. But at least, although I've, I've hated that business that they've taken it over for an alleged sports quiz, which I can't see what's it got to do with sport either. The, the quiz, you know, really is a, a crude, lewd program. <laughs> when people see you in the street, do they always shout it at you, shout it at you since about 66? Oh, God, yeah. I get that even today, people, you can hear that's the man who said they think it's all over. And do they actually stand there and ask you to say it to them? Oh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they send you books and will you will you write your immortal words? And, uh, and do you? Yes. What's the most bizarre situation where you've been asked to say it or write it? Well, <laughs> I don't know whether you can call this bizarre, but... You know, Wembley was going to come down. I don't know what's going to happen to it yeah. now. But um, yeah. people had all sorts of souvenirs. People bringing out videos. And, and the number of things I've had to sign at Wembley, and all of us, well, I write, they think it's all over. It is now. My name. And I've had, like, 500 at a time coming. So it's God almighty. <laughs> Can't you get a stamp that just puts it on every single one? Well, that's unfair, isn't it? They don't all see that. I would have thought they'd be the perfect words for your gravestone. 
Is it something you would ever consider or have ever considered? Well, I should imagine someone will put that on the uh, gravestone and or the Remembrance Book or something like that. And every newspaper will use it when they find out that I've gone, if they ever bother to, uh, that I have gone. <laughs> you mentioned Wembley just now. What do you think should happen with Wembley or the National Sports Stadium? Well, Wembley was so far past its sell-by date, it had to be pulled down. I mean, it was deplorable. It was great when it was first built. And I can say my dad went there for the first ever cup final when Bolton beat West Ham United. But Wembley, where the stadium was built, it was just a great area of playing fields and grassland. I mean, it wasn't a built-up area. And, well, you could get there quite easily because not many people with cars. I mean, it only took the man on the white horse 12 minutes, I believe, to get from the West End of London when he was called, you know, mm. come and help us. He got to Wembley in 12 minutes on horseback. But then it all became crowded and it was a pig of a place to get to, mm. even worse getting from it. Everything was wrong with it. It was catty and... Uh, you know, other people built these lovely stadiums. Mm. Now, I thought, let's have a big stadium in the mm. middle of the country. Mm. And Birmingham will be a marvelous place. There's an airport, all the railway stations, all the motorways coming there. Wembley used to claim only a mile and a half from the end of the M1. Yes, it'll take you a good hour do that mile and a half in the car. <laughs> Why do you think England have not won the World Cup since 66? Oh, I don't know, because they haven't been good enough. I suppose you can say in 1990, we lost in a penalty shootout, which are all <laughs> very much a gamble. But I don't think we've been good enough. I mean, we were good enough in um, 66. Mm. And it was strange that Nobody thought we were at the start. Now, the opening game is always a bore because they've had all the celebrations and stuff, and the players have been kept waiting. And we played Uruguay that had a, a new formation in football. They had a goalkeeper and ten defenders. Mm. And <laughs> it was nil-nil. Then we beat Mexico. And we were always hard to beat. They were in every World Cup, Mexico. Then we beat France, who were very hotly fancied to win the World Cup in 66. Then we came up against Argentina. <laughs> now, they were the best footballing side, mm. perhaps in the competition, but had a lack <coughs> of discipline, and mm. we beat them one nothing. Then we suddenly realised, wait, we're at the semi-final. And then they got the toughest game of all. That was against Portugal, and we beat them. Well, but this time... The players were not hoping that they'd win it. They knew they were going to win yeah. then. And it was the Portuguese coach who was asked after that semi-final, who do you think will win the final then on um, Saturday? He said, you've just seen the final, haven't you? Uh, and that, that was a tremendous compliment to England. Yeah. And, of course, we did beat the Germans. Do you think you would have been remembered so well if it wasn't for us winning that match? Oh, no, no. I think, you know, in all these things, the winners are remembered. 
the runners-up are not really remembered. A whole lot of people will tell you who won the derby in 1957 or something like that. Mm. Ask them who was second, and they say, oh, was there a second? Mm. <laughs> are you it's, quite friendly with Jeff Hurst? Do you, do you know him yes, quite well? Yes. Because everyone associates you with him. Cause yes, very friendly with him. And a lot of people don't realise how late Jeff was in coming into the team. Oh, I know, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, he's, he's been knighted. Would you like to have been knighted? Do you feel you've missed out there? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know why you get knighted. Never really crossed my mind. A whole lot of people I know have uh, tried to set up a campaign saying that I should get some honour. People have made a fuss about the fact that most of the top commentators have got the OBE. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't got anything. <laughs> Do you feel you've been overlooked then? Well, I, I suppose I was, but um, I got two two medals during the war, which I think are much more valuable <laughs> than, um, than a knighthood. <laughs> what medals did you win in the RAF? I got the Distinguished Flying Cross and wow. then the bar to the Distinguished Flying Cross. So wow. two Distinguished Flying Crosses. Where had you been bombing? Well, mainly in Europe. Um, yeah. I didn't go to Far East or anything like yeah. that. But I was a member of Pathfinder Force, which, mm-hmm. you know, used to go out and mark the targets. So, uh, you know, and then they suddenly came up and you got one of these and it cost you a few few bob for to buy a round of drinks in the mess. Did you ever get shot down or nearly? No, thank or, goodness. Or shot at? Oh, God, shot at. Yeah. <laughs> Do you wish that you'd become a top footballer or manager? Oh, I wouldn't like to be a manager. <laughs> Very hard work, isn't it? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. What about a player, though? A top, would you like oh, to I'd have been love a top? to have been a yeah, top footballer. How good were you? Well, I was only 18 when the war broke out, but I was a budding goalkeeper. How good do you think you would have been? <laughs> oh, well, we all live in dreams, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, come on. Uh, no, you... I, I thought I was a pretty good goalkeeper at 18. Yeah. And um, and I, I, I played a bit when I was in the RAF, but then they stopped uh, operational aircrew playing. Mm. And it was a very bad day. I, <laughs> oh, I can always remember it. I made a great save, but I fell on flat of my hand fractured the waist of my scaphoid all the little bones and the wrist so the air ministry no I think it was bomber command really came out with the thing operational air crew would not be allowed mm. to play dangerous sports such as football and <laughs> rugby <laughs> Kenneth may we know about wife and children and well I had a wife Joan and we were married 53 years but she died three years ago I think it was three years ago yes and then we had a a daughter who died of leukemia and another daughter Lena who lives very close to me here with her family got two granddaughters and one grandson I bet you adore them don't you oh yes and one of the granddaughters she started her A-levels today yes (laughs) As you, as you indicated earlier, you, you've faced your fair share of tragedy. How difficult is that to deal with? Well, it's not easy. It's very difficult. You know, um, what can you do? 
You, you've had some great times in your life, though. Do you f- kind of feel this is life balancing itself? How, how do you sort of come to terms with it all? Well, I, I think uh, I could do that and say that, listen, I've, I've had so many good times. Absolutely terrific. So, you know, you can't win them all, can you? you you've got this great image as a complete gentleman of the game and, and everything else. Is it, has it been difficult to maintain that image, or do you think that's the way you were brought up, to be the fine fellow that you are, renowned to be? Well, I was brought up to be a good lad. I haven't strayed from the straight and narrow, but... Um, <laughs> no, I... I I was brought up in the time when, you, you know, you're brought up to be courteous, to open doors for ladies. And, and I think that's what gets me now. If you um on the carousel at an airport, the lady moved towards getting her big suitcase. The gentleman there says, I'll get this for you. There, don't worry. And he got a hold of it and put it down. She said, what do you think I am, a cripple? Oh, dear. You know... Uh, <laughs> You can't win, can you? No, you can't. But I was, I was leading on to sort of like the football, and these days, you know, there's people taking drugs and spitting on the pitch. And everything. Do you feel, oh my goodness, what's happened to my yeah. lovely game? Oh yes, uh, I, I mean, drugs I can't stand. Drug problem is not as bad as it is in the, say, for instance, athletics, swimming, uh, which is all very sad. And of course, when you think we used to have this expression. No, you can't do that. That's not cricket, old chap. And now you find out what's happened to cricket. Mm. It's very sad. It's this spread betting, which I don't really understand. Because mm. <laughs> I'm not a gambler. When will we have the first throw in? We'll back the first and third minute. And you tell one of the players who uh, said when he kicks the ball into touch for no reason at all, there's a throw in. And... Um, these fellas just pick up a bob or two. <laughs> I don't think that goes on a great deal. What people do at football matches, they quote out odds against who are going to score first, and it's that, you know, what the final result's going to be. You know, but I, I, I don't think there's any real fiddling going on. How satisfied are you with the way your career went as a commentator? Oh, I'm... Um, I'm very satisfied. I wish it had gone on a bit longer, but, um, you know, BBC tried to break the contract and we had a row and that was it. But, oh no, it, it was a wonderful life. Do you have much memorabilia from your career? Many souvenirs and things? No. You're not a great collector of things? Not a great collector of things at all. In fact... <laughs> I haven't got a World Cup final programme. <laughs> from 66? Have you got, got anything from 66 at all? Uh, no. No. When did you move to Devon? Three years ago. Got a nice little bungalow in Gampton. Mm-hmm. And the sun's shining. Mm-hmm. Was that a good move? Because you used to live in Surrey, didn't you? In Yule I used to live in Surrey, yes. In, in Yule, which is part of Epsom. Was that a difficult move, then, to move away? It was, yes. Yes, because uh, Yule's a very nice place, and Surrey's a very nice place. But, you know, my daughter and the granddaughter say, why don't you come and live near us? us and um, Anyway, <laughs> there did, we are. Was it a good decision to, to retire to Devon, do you think? In a way, yes, and 
in a way, no. Um, I'm quite enjoying it here. The, the people are nice, and um, I'm a social member of the Yacht Club, the Brixham Yacht Club. Mm-hmm. I've never sailed anything in my life. <laughs> I had a little boat when I was a little kid, uh, which I played with in the bath, but that sank, so I <laughs> never trusted boats <laughs> that day. And do you keep yourself fit and so on? Well, I try to. I mean, I play golf, but I haven't been very well recently. No, of course. But I, I, I think, but I know, Codger, I'm not all that bad. <laughs> Do you have any ambitions left? Uh, you know, to keep alive. <laughs> <laughs> See Bolton Wanderers win next Monday. Oh. <laughs> Get in the Premiership. <laughs> and how would you like to be remembered after you're gone? Well, I'd just like to be remembered that I was a pretty nice fella, good commentator, and uh, that's it. This is Peter Jonathan Robertson. If you'd like to comment on that interview with Kenneth Wollstoneholm from 2001, or any of my other interviews on the PJ Archive, you can find me on Twitter, at PeterJonathanR2.